0: Welcome to the Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. I'm Stefan Clark, Chief Client Officer. Not long ago, artificial intelligence seemed fringe. Then ChatGPT arrived and suddenly AI became viewed by many as one of the most transformative technologies of our time. It's already having a major impact and its potential to change the world is only just beginning. As the AI industry continues to evolve, and more and more capital is allocated to advancing AI technologies, the opportunities for investors grow. There are a range of ways to invest in AI, but already interest is driving share prices of some of US technology companies, such as Microsoft, Google, and Nvidia much higher, in spite of an otherwise more challenged investment environment. Today, we're joined by Michael Hansen, Senior Vice President of Research at Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments manage over $300 billion in assets for individuals, families and institutions around the world, and is one of a select group of investment managers that NZ Funds partners with. Michael is a leading investment expert, a member of the firm's investment policy committee, and will be sharing his insights on AI and investing in the technology. Michael, it's a delight to have you here, very excited about today's topic. Let's start a little bit with you. Uh, it would be great if you just sort of share about you know your role and um, how you found yourself at Fisher, and uh, and I can see from the background that you're in a very sunny part of the world right now, which is the exact opposite of Auckland. So please um, take us take us through that, and then we'll we'll dive into the topic afterwards.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Stefan. I'm honored to be on the program and, and very pleased to be talking about this uh, topic with you. Indeed, I'm up here in the northern part of America on the West Coast, and today is the longest day of the year, and so we'll get sunlight all the way through to about 10 p.m. up here, which we don't always get. We get a lot of rain up this way, so it's nice. It's a nice thing for us. But yeah, I've been with Fisher for 21 years. Uh, it's been pretty much my whole career. I started out as an investment banker on Wall Street doing tech, and in fact. I cut my teeth doing the big tech boom of 1999, 2000, 2001, and saw that all the way through at the beginning of my career, and so much so that I got washed out at the end of it when <laughs> everything kind of went away. But I got to see all of it, and then uh, as a little bit of time passed and nobody was really hiring in financial services, I found this little place called Fisher Investments, which back then managed maybe a few billion dollars, uh, just a little over 100 employees, And I've been here ever since, and it's been an incredible ride. Um, The reason I've been here so long is because when it comes to topics like AI or anything having to do with investing, our specialty is to try and be different than the wider crowd. And our founder, Ken Fisher, is one of the best I've ever seen at that. And I've uh, been so lucky to learn from him uh, for so many years. Beyond that, I've done things like I have a psychology uh, degree, and I'm sort of known as our resident psychologist here. In fact, I approach a lot of markets from a sentiment standpoint in psychology, Um, and I'm an avid AI person. I actually study things like complex systems and so forth, uh, not just for the business, but for my own uh, pleasure. Um, Really, a lot of these technologies have been around for more than 20 years now, and they have a lot to offer. They're very interesting things in themselves.
0: Fantastic. Well, you are obviously um, exceptionally well-placed then to talk to the topic. I have a little confession, which was that um, when I started thinking about this topic, I went to an AI program and I said, tell me the top 30 things I should ask. And, um, and sure enough, it did. It told me 30 questions and I went through them and I thought, hmm, lots of them are really good, but actually some of them weren't. So um, I'm sure we'll, we'll delve into the, the pros and cons practically yes. of AI in, in time, but let's, let's start at the beginning. Um, what is artificial intelligence?
1: Well, it's obviously a very broad term that's being used for so much at this moment, but the way I like to think about it is it's a conglomeration of new technologies. Um, If you study systems, which is what we were just mentioning a moment ago, AI is a system because it is taking information, it's putting it through a mechanism, and then actually feeding it back through. That's creating a system. And so you want to study systems and some of their language in order to understand AI. But I think Steve Jobs had the best definition of what a technology is. And I think it applies to AI. When he created the iPhone, what he said was, I didn't invent the iPhone. What happened was all these technologies were ready to be put together. And in systems theory, that's very intuitive because one theory of technology is something called combinatorics which is that you put things together to make a higher-order technology, and I think that's precisely what's happened here. If you look at AI, what is it really? Well, you have the presence of big data, that's essential, obviously, and we have that pervasively in the world now, especially in our industry. You have computing power, not just at the local level, but at the cloud level, so that you can execute so many things now you couldn't even just 10 years ago, so you have just that raw computing power. Next, though, and this is the part that I think that has really made the spark for AI, is natural language processing. And thats it's not just the thing that puts it all together. It makes it accessible for everyone. I mean, I'm sure we'll get to talking about this. But one of the interesting things about these new versions of AIs is that you don't necessarily have to be a coder. You don't have to be a mathematician in order to execute them. With natural language processing, now the interface is available to anyone with the capability of language. And that's an enormous change. When you put those things together, suddenly now you have something that's different than there was before. And I think that's pretty much what AI is. I mean, when we talk about it in our office here, I refer to it as a supersized search. I think that's what it really is. It's it's a next order search. And I think that's also why companies like Google and Microsoft are so on about it, because there's an existential feature there to them. If they do not control the nature of search, they don't have much of a business, and so they really need to be in front of this. And I think that's where it all comes together. It's really a lot like the next level of search, which is so important in our world of information today.
0: But there, there are lots of applications. It's not just the act of searching though, isn't, mm-hmm. isn't it? So um, you mentioned cloud computing and you mentioned Microsoft, but there are you know, other technology companies, um, consumer companies, um, Netflix and so forth. They, they're all embracing it too. Can you you know can you take us through a few more you know other applications that you're aware of and how um, how how that you know how that impacts us as consumers people and then obviously business more generally?
1: Yeah, I think as many people have probably read by now, there have been forms of AI you've been using for years, and it's actually been on your smartphone. Amazon's utilized versions of this for years because it does have in some sense to do with search and then the organizational function or the next step being giving some organization to that. And so if you take that more literally, you can apply it to all sorts of things. It's gonna be an enormous thing in marketing. Um, not just on the site, in a couple of ways. One, because it's gonna automate so much and that so much of what you might call the busy work of the information technology world can be automated and that they can just you know, automate features all the way on through without having a human do them. But it's also on the analytical side and so forth, because part of advanced search essentially is that you'll be able to detect patterns that you couldn't normally detect otherwise. And that's one of the real important features about AI is that as it, it learns as it goes, that's what neural networking is really all about. This is one of the core features of AI, which is that you take a data set and you push a bunch of data through it, and it goes through what are called nodes, which are effectively like decision trees. And eventually it gives you an output. It gives you an answer of some kind based on all these algorithms you created. And the part that's really important then is that it feeds itself back into the system to create another result along with other new data. That's the learning part. And so as a result, you can find patterns that humans wouldn't normally look for or even know to look for. And you might be able to detect those. That'll have a huge implication in things like marketing. But... As also, I think, you know you, you can take that to any part of the information economy that really has an application. So insurance, for example, just the pricing of insurance probably gets more efficient over time based on the way AI can take data. Um, infamous, I know, and everywhere in the world, but especially here in the States, taxes. You know, I mean, taxes is one of the most difficult things to get through, and they already have lots of automation, but I can guarantee you that there'll now be a layer of AI on the things like taxes, such that That entire process, all the complication can be reduced to asking a few more prompts to the individual and have a lot less to do there. That, to me, is what it's really all about. And those are probably just a few of the applications. I mean, when I think about our business, investing, which is going to be a place where AI is very heavily uh, integrated, what do we talk about? Well, we talk about a few things. It's not just about, can I find the secret data or the secret answer to make things outperform? That's a part of it. But really, we talk about automation as well. Uh, We have a research staff of over 100. And in that, there's just a tremendous amount of analytical work that has to do with processing data, making the next report, and so forth. AI is going to have a lot to say about simply automating those things and reducing just the amount of overall workload. Um, One of the ways I like to describe it is that throughout human history, you've just had labor-intensive things, right? And through much of civilization, it was about people even sacrificing their lives to go into a mine and get a commodity or whatever it was, hard labor. Well, in the information economy, it's not the same as that, but there is a version of it, which is they're just processing. You know, There are people in the information economy that are just processing, um, making reports, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of those things can be automated so that those people can go on and do higher orders of work, which to me is not something to necessarily be afraid of. I do think it will automate some work away. But as has always been true with any new technology, it's been much more the case that the economy adapts, moves on, finds many new functions for people to do new jobs, rather than just simply destroying jobs uh, at a certain part of the of the infrastructure. Let's say
0: it's interesting that, isn't it, technology um, uh, over over the over the generations that it's been more and more at the forefront. There's always been calls that it's going to drive unemployment through. Um, you know, the, obviously, originally from the Luddites and so forth, and then, and yet now, where population has you know sixty percent higher than it was a couple of you know fifty years ago or something, and um, and unemployment across the board is at its all time low still. So um, you know, yeah. it, it, it changes things, but it doesn't necessarily result in you know um, significant reductions in employment and and the, the automation industrialization of of the way we operate as a, as a species. Um, <clears throat> Some of the other things that really that stood out there is um, you, you talked about uh, the applications. Um, medical is one thing, and Google's been focused on that recently, haven't they? Um, and the other area that is really prominent AI at the moment is cyber and fraud prevention. Can you talk a little bit about those particular fields and, and they're um, very topical uh, at, at the moment?
1: Medical, I think, is worth talking about first. You know, in my mind, the great technological uh, miracle of the last hundred years has, has maybe been PCs, computers, but it's mostly been medicine. Medicine is a great miracle of our age. And it continues at a pace that is amazing. And in fact, our founder, Ken Fisher, um, is someone who keeps up very much on medical technology, and he's, I, I just hear him comment from time to time about if you read the journals consistently, medical journals out there, the, the innovations are coming fast and as fast and furious as they ever have. AI is going to play a big role in that. And I see it um, in a few different ways. One is that medicine, especially here in, in America, uh, and I know it's true in many parts of the world, is an amazingly bureaucratic structure an enormous amount of data to be processed, an enormous amount that can be automated better and better, and especially for doctors to have access to patient information. I mean, that's just a basic one, one I think that'll be done a lot. When you get to the actual side of care, um, diagnosis will probably be more effective and faster because a doctor can interface with their artificial intelligence, whatever you want to call it, in order to get to possibilities more quickly and then the remedies for those things and put them in a hierarchy and be more effective in doing that. Um, The great chess player, or many great chess players, um, but especially Gary Kasparov, who was the great chess player of the 90s and often considered one of the best ever, wrote a great book about machine learning and chess. and, And his conclusion about that was that It's not about just the AI and it's not about just the person. The absolute best chess player is the one where both of those are utilized. That'll be true in medicine as well, I think, in terms of coming to to conclusions about care and being more efficient. I mean, this is the type of thing that opens up the door to specialized care where people, uh, your your provider can understand you down to your DNA and use that to know what the right specific care is for you, to model it specifically for you as opposed to having a more uh, generic application. On the surgical side and the medicine side, this also, I mean, it'll be it, it'll it'll change things a lot because pharmacology, for example, is often a game of hit or miss. It's increasingly, though, becoming data-oriented so where they can find the spots to find the right types of pharmacology, all different types of drugs that way, and that AI, with almost with some certainty, I would say, is going to be able to help assist finding the areas where there's more applicable drugs easier to do, more possible for humanity, and so forth. And then on the actual surgical side, I mean, I I don't know how fast this will happen, but over time, a learning machine can be of a huge assistance with surgeries. I mean, the human body is not, every human body is different, but essentially it's all the same in terms of where the organs are and so forth. And that a learning capability across a pretty specific dynamic like that with some variations actually is the just the type of thing that AI might be able to do very well at. And already, you know, robotics have made their way into surgical uh, procedures, many, even some done at a great distance. And I can see AI assisting in all that. But what you notice about all of this conversation is that AI is sort of like a functionality. It's like a software that's going to be integrated into all of this, but it's really out there. I mean, there are firms, and we'll talk. I'm sure we'll get to talking about this, but there are firms who will benefit from this and see their revenues grow and become big, bigger firms as a result of it. But so much of this, as it did with the PC era, I believe, is going to simply, the, the benefits of it will just accrue to humanity. That over time, you may not see the greatest productivity numbers, you know, that they were expecting or something like this. Because I remember in the 2000s, people said, you know, PCs would change productivity forever. And you know, those numbers moved a little bit, but not that much. And I think it's very difficult to calculate those things. I mean, we know computers have been a huge change in productivity for what we can do, but it didn't really show up in those numbers. AI will be similar, that the way we do go about our lives, it'll be so integrated into many functions. It won't necessarily be the case that all the profits and capital, that's what would it, what it was all about. It might be just more that This is a very open source software that many people are going to be able to use. It'll be in functionalities everywhere. And in that sense, it's a little bit more of a commodity to me.
0: Yeah, I guess the the one way of rephrasing that is not clear where the financial benefits will accrue. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is clear that social benefits have the potential to be very significant.
1: Indeed. You you mentioned cyber, and I'll just take a second to, to mention that as well. Cyber is a double-edged sword to me, uh, cybersecurity, because essentially in the cyber world you are trying to keep up with the criminals. I mean, it, it's hard to know what they're going to do beforehand, so you have to try and you see what they do, and then move your tactics so that you're up to date with whatever they've done, you know, most recently. That's unfortunately the nature of cybersecurity. Exactly, and so what I see it as is, you know, the cyber firms are going to have to do it. They probably have to go to quite great expense, which means they're, you know, they may tout their capabilities. They probably also have to spend a ton of money to get that done. And on the other side of it, um, while they may be able, be able to mitigate a lot of things, and that'll be helpful, probably good for their business. Um, cyber-based crime will also increase in sophistication. In fact, you know we have many clients of retirement age uh, at, here at Fisher Investments all over the world. And one of the things we hear is that scams of many kinds um, are perpetrated. And the most recent I heard was that we had uh, someone who had used a, 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 essentially an artificial intelligence function to um, fake their granddaughter's voice and to create a call and to even try to extort them uh, for money out of that. And, you know, that's you, you, more and more of that's going to happen. And so humanity's sophistication in terms of understanding what, what they're getting and, and, and what the interface with technology looks like is also going to have to become more sophisticated because cyber is not going to be able to take care of all that.
0: Incredible. The the other one, just back to medical, that really stood out to me is diagnostics and bringing, you mentioned um, the search and bringing lots of data together. Um, My understanding of the way the diagnostic process works is that they have to, you know, if if you're in the medical domain, you need to, you know, you've got a lot of information that needs to be synthesized down to make a, to draw a conclusion and um, being able to use vast data and then find an answer quickly will lead to, it can then lead to much, you know, sooner diag- diagnosis and, you know, application of medicine and and so forth.
1: Great example of that is radiology and oncology, which, you know, um, if, you, if you talk to a radiologist, they spend years, the better part of a decade trying to understand yeah. the patterns of seeing what certain things are based on x-rays. And an artificial intelligence, frankly, is going to be able to assist that quickly and accurately, probably better than most humans can, ultimately.
0: Yeah, incredible, isn't it? Okay, so um, let's talk about the financial um, component to it and investing in um, AI. Um, as, as a start, there's been, you know, and I'm sure you've seen this, Been, um, in fact, you alluded to it in relation to the, um, the PC era, pundits um, favoring the explosion of AI and, and, and investing in a, you know, touting significant GDP um, growth as a result of it, particularly accruing to the U.S. Um, how do you at Fisher view the broader sort of uh, financial impact of this um, new technology? Yeah, I would
1: say that on the investing side, I'm. Um, it's not that we don't see the benefits. And in fact, you know, for our own investments, we certainly do have positions that are that are AI focused. But you know, anytime you hear the world changing and, and, and all that, I, we tend to be skeptical, and I am a little bit skeptical on that uh, count. If you take Microsoft, who's right at the forefront of this right now, um, in in, vari- in a variety of ways, their most recent estimate is that this like is that their offerings in AI can add up to ten billion dollars, maybe more, in annualized revenue. At least that's what I saw most recently, which is significant, but. A, you know, Microsoft is a firm that's valued in the trillions of dollars, and the frank truth is, plus or minus ten billion dollars in revenue isn't as big as it may seem, and and that's one of the things that I think you, you really have to be careful with in terms of the financial landscape. I'm going to talk about GDP in a second, but you know, you talk about these firms, they're enormous firms, and you know, we, it's the same concept with um, with uh, when you talk about energy, green energy, and so forth, and we talk about this with clients because. Um, it's true that ExxonMobil may have a big green energy division, but its revenues for that are almost never, certainly at least not in the foreseeable future, going to dwarf anything like what the oil revenues are. It's an oil-based company. And, you know, Microsoft has features of that. So does Google and that you really have to contextualize this. When you have these enormous firms, even the biggest technology doesn't necessarily change the whole game. And I think that'll be true for GDP as well. We We were talking earlier about how the promise of PCs Um, We're supposed to change productivity forever and make GDP go like this, you know, and and all that. We were going to be on the
0: uh, beach, I thought.
1: Indeed. And, you know, AI will be no different. Um, It'll have great benefits to humanity, but GDP is a pretty constant thing over time. And even to get that to move a couple of tenths of a percent is much larger than people think. The inertia of a global economy is is just enormous, even compared to something uh, like AI,
0: yeah, okay, which actually brings about an interesting question is if the financial components, uh, you know, the, the, the potential rewards to and to companies, say Microsoft, aren't as big as, you know, um, on the face people uh, believe they are, but there are downside risks because they're investing heavily in it. And, you know, some businesses, are, you know, Microsoft's um, purchase of OpenAI, for example, is a very significant price tag attached to that, and, yeah. and it's just the beginning. So how do, we, how do you think about the risk to reward dimension there?
1: Well, I think you've hit on quite a lot of it. One of them is what do you have to actually pay uh, to make all of this happen? So internally here, you know, we've been engaged with some of our vendors with data who and, we, and who are touting AI capabilities. And everybody all of a sudden in their investing uh, interfaces and software, they've got all this AI they say they're putting in there. So they were excellent at giving us a big presentation and a big pitch book. And then about a week later, they came to us and said, well, we're actually quite a bit behind on this. This is six months away. This is 12 months away, et cetera, et cetera. On top of that, it's pretty expensive because um, if you want to try and run your own, let's say, chat GPT um, without any outside vendors, well, you've got the source code, but you need a tremendous amount of computing power and, and a lot of um, expertise in order to really make that work in a way that's, that's error free enough to be um, usable. And so, you know, for, for me, when I think about these things, what I think is, I don't want to say the word disappointment, but I, but I want to instead draw some parallels. Um, in the same way that we get overhyped about so many types of investing fads, this won't be so different. There will be winners, there'll be tons of great things about it. But the promise of it is probably a little bit farther out than people realize, and this is where money management becomes very, very important. Because our observation is that, regardless of a secular trend, stocks oscillate in cyclical patterns, and the cyclical patterns shall not be superseded by the larger by the larger trends. And that was true for PCs. At a certain point, it'll probably be true now that it's the it's the where you are in the cycle that matters, and so. In the late 90s, it wasn't just the tech stocks did well in the U.S. It was mega cap stocks. The largest capitalization stocks did well for an extended period of time. Those also happened to be growth stocks. And it was a great signifier that we were late cycle. Now you parallel that with today. Well, we've got a bit of a frenzy with AI. You also have deeply inverted yield curves and all sorts of other recession signals out there. And you say to yourself, where are we today? Because last year we had a bear market for most of the world but it was a shallow one. So is it really a reset of the new cycle? Because we never had a recession, especially here in the US, starting to look like one perhaps in in Europe, but it hasn't developed yet. And so to us, you know, the balancing factor for this at this moment is not who's gonna benefit the most or what's the long-term 10-year outlook. It's more like what are the right stocks to be in at this stage in the cycle? They happen to, a lot of them, to be semiconductor stocks. And one of the things that's so interesting is that you talk about your NVIDIAs of the world and so forth as the leaders in this, uh, semiconductors, but the fact is they ought to be leading at a moment like this anyway. Semiconductors are um, at a part of their cycle where they tend to lead in an equity cycle. And so it's intuitive to us. So I would just add these things. Um, I think a lot of what AI is about to become is push it down the line a little bit. The promise of it looks great, but actually we have to spend all this money and it takes a while to implement. This may actually be a three to five year thing Not a six month thing. And the second thing is, there has been an absolute frenzy of investment in this, not just private and public, but also in things like semiconductors. I mean, I was looking over the other day the list of global new semiconductors foundries that are scheduled to be in North America, Europe, Asia, et cetera, and it's enormous. And it reminds me a lot of the semiconductor oversupply of the early 2000s. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if we see a repeat of that. Because um, ultimately all of these things, semiconductors and AI are commodities. They will be, um, especially semiconductors though, is that even the cutting edge semiconductor today is one day our commoditized chip. And that'll be true for the AI versions of chips that, uh, Nvidia has, or the, you know, the great uh, transistors that Taiwan semi can make for many other types of capacities. They won't be the leader that way forever. And that, um, you can get this turn from euphoria into something that looks a lot more negative real quick because I think that people are going to throw a lot of money at this and the results may not be as fast as they think.
0: I guess it comes down to your measure. If your measure is um, can we build a profitable business and um, or it's a profitable investment, it's very different from can we implement an AI tool in our business that um, is functional and, and contributes to productivity. And, for example, if you have semiconductors being built across the world, as you indicated, the price of that, of computing power, is going to drop meaningfully. And um, so the two are sort of inversely correlated in a way. And, um, and yeah, but uh, I, it, it takes a long time to tool up a factory. And so three to five years probably or well, could be, um, you know, on the shorter term, too, if, if computing power is what's holding it back.
1: Indeed, and you know, I, some of, in some of my wilder thoughts, I ask myself questions about what are the advantages to scale here? You know, because as we contemplate um, our own AI investments, I say to myself, well, everybody wants to be the first to do this, but why? Um, in three years, won't this be pretty standardized, and maybe even companies like Microsoft to have all the bugs worked out? Do we have to have this right this second? And that's an open question, and the reason I raise it that way is because Forever in economics, as we would have been taught, it's the just as you were saying, it's supply and demand and, and, and there are these curves that intersect. But is that true for the information economy? Because economics was created in an environment of essential materialism, um, you know, having to do with resources and labor, essentially. But in the information economy, what does scale actually mean? Because Usually, ever since Henry Ford, you know, created the Model T, you would say scaling has an advantage in many, many things. It does in our industry as well. But does AI flatten that out a bit? Because if so many of the human tasks that needed human capital to automate them or to execute them now can be automated pretty readily, does it make the mid-sized term uh, firm more competitive? Does it somehow change the advantages to scale you once had? And so, I actually think that. Once the frenzy is done, there's going to be a lot of soul searching about how you actually want to go about this and how does it change the nature of your business? How do you even differentiate? Um, Because if you can't do it with scale and size, how do you do it further? And um, anyway, as all these things come together, I just find it so interesting. I think that the dark side of this thing hasn't been contemplated and I don't necessarily mean AI becoming our overlords, I just mean that there's always two sides of the coin. To this investing concept and again in cycles things go up and they oscillate the other way too
0: absolutely we will talk about the dark side of ai um in a a moment we couldn't have a podcast about touching on that but um before we do that let's let's um talk about the ways in which companies are investing in the technology and i saw from a research piece from fisher um that that it's not just the public space, it's not just listed companies. There's a lot of activity in the private space. Why is that? And is that, you know, how, how do you think about that? Well, first of all, that
1: that is absolutely correct. And um, one of the difficulties, you know, we're primarily public equities manager. Uh, we, we believe in public equities for a variety of reasons, one of them being their superior liquidity, which I think is a great advantage. And I, and, and I bring that up because so many of the investments here are private. And it's very difficult for the average investor. You know, you listen to a podcast or you read a paper or whatever it is. But the fact is, by the time that's reached you, the opportunities for investment have happened at many stages, including private capital and venture and so forth. And that really is the case here that, you know, in, in my most of my career for a lot of the last 20 years, there's been a steady increase in private investment and more of a neutral even decrease to public or, or at least an a evening out of those, if you would. Very much true here that um, you can go the big route and you can buy Microsoft and you can buy Nvidia and you can buy all these types of firms that may or may not be linked up directly to AI because there's so much going on with their share prices. And then there's the private investment part of things, which is much more difficult to get at. And in addition to that, you're going to have, these are companies that are very high risk, high reward. They're going to be small companies that um, are looking to develop something very specific that either hits. And they sell it to a larger firm to integrate into some piece of software. Very few of these stand alone for for, forever. Most of the time they get integrated into a bigger firm. But if it doesn't work, then they just go away. And that's the nature of venture capital is that you make 100 investments and you expect a large percentage of those not to work. It'll be the same thing in AI. um, And it's happening as we speak. And so what you want to do, I I believe... um, as an investor, is consider always what the total totality of your situation is and what are you investing for and why. And does AI play a role in that? Maybe it's good for a little speculation here and there. But to go throwing your you know your weight all the way into a private investment and you know, I mentioned the liquidity of public stocks, that's really what it's all about here. Because in private investments, unless you're very sophisticated. Um, let's say like a big pension system or a big fund, you know, for for a big nation, for example, you have to have a ton of patience and you have to have the ability to stick through that a long time and know that there will be a high failure rate. Um, And so I I would say that getting this exposure on the equity side can be okay, but treacherous because it's a very widely discussed theme at this point. And otherwise it's tough because there's a lot of private investment there and that's, you know, the the VCs and the private equity firms of the the world tend to have a bit of of a monopoly
0: on that. They also have often an information advantage across their portfolio because they'll have invested in 20 AI stocks, say, and so they'll know what's working and what's not working. So um, I really liked your point also just around know why you're investing. Um, At NZ Funds, we put a lot of emphasis on liquidity for that that reason. Time horizons aren't like, you know, like a pension fund where you have a 30 or 40 year endowment or something like that. you know, people people want access to their funds and they want to be able to, you know, you know um, make purchases in their lives. And so you need to be very mindful about how you invest supporting your, the, the goals that you, you have of your clients.
1: I, I couldn't agree more. You know, um, uh, human overconfidence is real. It happens to us the same as anyone else. And liquidity is where that really comes in, because you will trade liquidity for potential return when you're overconfident. And that tends to happen when people are very excited about something. And yes, and just as you say, I mean, to me, liquidity is one of the true royal roads towards long-term wealth creation. Um, because when it dries up, you don't, rem- you don't realize how important that is until it finally goes away from you. Uh, and liquidity matters a lot.
0: NVIDIA um, has had quite a journey over the last uh, probably six to eight months or so. Can you take us through, you know, why that was and how Fisher thinks about it? It's sort of, a, we look at it um, and, I, you know, I understand it's um, been part of your portfolio um, at, 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 different, at different stages. How, how, how does the firm look at it? And, you know, where, where do you see its price today compared with, you know, um, as an investment?
1: Well, I go back to where we think we are in the cycle. Because for us, that drives a ton of whether or not an investment seems appropriate or not. And for really a lot of the last, I mean, really, frankly, a lot of the last decade, as we know, high quality, United States, growth-oriented technology has been the leaders with some others thrown in there. And NVIDIA is a tremendous story. I mean, they're they're an incredible firm in the sense that very difficult to contest with the likes of an Intel uh, or even an AMD or Samsung or whomever. But they did and they have and you know for a lot of years they were a mid-sized company who did great they made chipsets a lot of those would be done uh, and specialized for visualization things like video games But much more than that as well It turns out though that much of the mathematics behind a lot of what you would need to run parallel visualization and so forth is also very useful for running neural networking and the AIs in general and so they had kind of a natural advantage Um, they they were building up for a lot of years that I don't even know that they truly realized they had because they didn't necessarily know AI would break this way, but they have it now. And really now they have a moat around themselves, probably an advantage for a good few years. But I say only a few years because it it won't be that long until others catch up. And in fact, probably even find new chipsets that do better with AI. In fact, my understanding is that Google is already pretty far along the way to finding new ways to, um, put chips together that are just better designed for the AI. But with NVIDIA, you know, the interesting thing about them is their rise hasn't just been in the last six months or a year. It's been sustained for a while. They've been getting bigger and bigger. And I always, one of the things I just love about working in this industry is that the market has the ability um, to see things well before any other intelligence, including artificial. You know, I remember just some years, a few couple years ago, before all of this, NVIDIA doing quite well. And I'm just saying to myself, why is it that they're becoming so large? And what is it that's happening here? And everybody had their reasons at the time. But the market, I think, started to see some of this very early on and priced it in. And so they've been a long term story. Whether they can keep it up for the very, very long haul, I think that's the part to be skeptical about. And with us, the way we do investing is that You can have a long-term story, you can have a company you think will do well for 10 or 20 years, but the market only ever really looks about 3 to 30 months into the future. That's that part I was mentioning before is that cycles are always different but you always get one and the stocks go with the cycle. If the whole market's falling, it doesn't matter if it's NVIDIA or not, NVIDIA will also fall. It's part of the system and so we look for that and we know that the market doesn't really have the ability to see much further out than about 30 months. Um, At least that's what our analysis tends to indicate. And so as we look 30 months out into the future, NVIDIA is a clear leader. They will have leadership um, and sell a lot of chips in that time. But further out than that, it would be foolish, I think, not to believe that uh, very tough competition comes in with them. And so from there, it's a matter of whether they can stay ahead of the game and stay the leader. Um, That'll always be the, the feature that what they have today is nice for right now.
0: It is, and in a little way, it's, I actually saw the CEO of NVIDIA speak about um, the journey they had been on, and, uh, and it's almost a rags-to-riches story as an organization where they, uh, not that long ago, were um, knocking on death's door and then managed to claw it back and then have gone from strength to strength since that point, which is um, is an incredible achievement in such a um, competitive marketplace.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because we um, – w- You know when you study markets for long periods of time one of the things you study is survivorship bias and uh, survivorship bias just being the idea that actually most firms don't last that long the s p 500 or whatever it is you're looking at might be going up but the firms in there change over quite a bit and the ability to reinvent oneself and to stay ahead is very difficult indeed very few firms have been able to do it over time And it's significant when they do. I mean, through the last hundred years, companies like General Electric, GE could reinvent themselves several times. I do believe IBM, for example, did for a long time and now has struggled in the last really, let's call it 20 or 30 years um, to reinvent themselves. And a great story today, which is somewhat related to our conversation, is Oracle. Because Oracle has seen a tremendous resurgence. They take this big gamble on cloud-based database systems, essentially, and they're going to end up integrating a ton of AI into what they do. And they made a tremendous reinvention. Not many firms do, and I personally had even thought of Oracle as something that was on its way down um, in its life cycle some years ago, but they reinvented and NVIDIA is just uh, very interesting in that way. And like I say before, I said before, we'll see if they can... Keep it going because now uh, everybody's after them.
0: There have been some very prominent people uh, Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, um, leaders in business and um, in physics in one case, um, a warning against AI and um, in. in, Generally, it's around the threat of the overlords and um, the threat to human existence. It's obviously quite a um, significant statement, but they're also very prominent and um, people who put a lot of thought into what, um, perhaps not in Elon Musk's case all the time, but the others certainly, um, a, a lot of thought into what they say. And, um, and so, yeah, how do you think about um the, how they, you know, these sort of statements and warnings and what the role of the regulator is and, you know, driving, enabling the technology to develop, but maintaining um, uh, safety and security for, 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 the civil, for our civilizations.
1: Yeah, well, first, I think people in those types of positions are right to be prudent. I mean, it would be imprudent and improper to be nonchalant about this issue, especially if you're in a, such a position of prominence and power. So prudence is always appropriate. That said, it's probably a little bit much. What we have today in AI, as I said before, is um, still really nothing like a human intelligence. And I, if you'll permit me, I want to you know, talk for a minute about the fact that the market yes. Capital markets are still by far the great artificial intelligence. They are the superior intelligence. And the reason for that is because it is itself a self-organized, spontaneous system of both both results and signals. So they do function like a system because what, what is a price? A price is the result of buying and selling. And then that price then acts as a signal for the next set of buys and sells. And so in that sense, it's recursive and you're seeing information fed into the system that way. Well, that process is incentivized by profit, which is pretty powerful for a human being, and what we have across the globe now is anyone who's an investor applying their intelligence, their point of view, whatever that specific subjectivity is, to the market, that is overwhelmingly more powerful than anything like a supersized search engine can do at this moment. Now, perhaps AI will get much bigger, and it will get to that point where something spontaneous happens like a consciousness, But there is nothing like that at this moment. In fact, the most sophisticated AIs, the the neural networks that have been applied, are a little bit more intelligent than a jellyfish getting up there with the crustaceans at this point. I mean, it's a little bit better than that. I'm exaggerating a bit, but it's nothing like a human intelligence. You need tons and tons of scale. My own personal opinion is you need quantum computing along with artificial intelligence, most likely to create the type of intelligence that would create our overlord, let's say. Second piece is that there's no indication that there's volition, which is to say willpower, which is the part that makes intelligence and life go. Um, A human or someone has to give these things instructions. And so uh, perhaps those can run amok and we should be careful of those and so forth. I think that's important. When you get to the regulation part, this is where it can get dangerous because ChatGPT, AI in general, are not specific things. They are software that's already open source and generalized. It's out there. So what is it that you're going to restrict? Well, you could restrict companies from using it. That's possible. But if you do that, it'll push it either into the much smaller firms that don't want to report it or it pushes it into the black market. But it's out there. It's not something that's going to be controlled per se at this point, Um, particularly with regulation in, in any which way that that I can see that makes a ton of sense. And so what I think that is much more prudent, if you, if you would, is that the proceeding forward has to have some standard or something like that that people want to adhere to and agree upon. But the regulation in terms of trying to terminate the activity and so forth, that horse is already out of the barn. And that if you try to stop it in one area, it will, as systems do, find a way to grow somewhere else until it's there. But it, it's out there at this point. And uh, um, I don't see much stopping that. And what I worry about with regulation is rules that uh, slow a company down, but not the actual technology itself.
0: Uh, For a regulator, there's probably some comfort in having your Googles and your Microsofts and these trusted entities being at the front of an emerging technology then, because presumably they have deep relationships with government and um, act uh, – um, you know, have larger compliance divisions and so forth that will be able to respond to regulatory oversight or, or concerns.
1: Yeah, and I think that you can take that point a little bit further. And, and as we were discussing earlier that for a company like Google, this is actually existential. And so if, if you if, if with their size and you're right, they're going to have a relationship with the governments of the world. For good or ill, they will. They've got very uh, you know cozy relationships there. And so that could go both directions, though, because the number of lobbying dollars that are now spent by your Metas and your Googles and your Microsofts is enormous. And so um, with companies that large, they can influence the political process, and and they have before. I think we see that going on with politics in America as well and and information. But because it's existential, especially for Google, I mean, I, I view... I don't view uh, AI for Google as something that's nice to have or exciting. I view it for them as an existential risk because if they don't do this right, they go away. Their business is based on search. So it will be good to observe them as the biggest player and the one where so much of this funnels through to see what they do, how they do it, how it all kind of plays out because then maybe you can perhaps go to the regulatory framework and say, well, here's how the the overwhelming majority uh, of this works in society, and we can deal with those players as well. But I, I will go back to my point before. You could do that to those companies, but it doesn't change anything about what all the other companies will do. I mean, this this technology is gonna be completely diffuse within a few years, most likely.
0: Yeah. Very exciting though, too. I mean, uh, there'll be some incredible diversity of thought and new products coming to market as more and more, as the technology becomes more accessible. Um, but it also means, which, uh, the skills people as individuals need to operate in a world where AI exists will need to evolve too. and in support of that education um, and the way our universities prepare and our schools prepare the next generation. Have you and how, how do you think about what AI will mean for um, the skill sets that we, we should be encouraging our children to develop? So I
1: got a funny answer about this. I think that we're about to see the return of the librarian, in some sense. And what I mean by that is, in a world where research can be done for you, you just at, the, at the prompt of a chat GPT, what matters then is curation and the associations you make as a person with all the things that are coming at you and the, and the novelty you can create from that. And I actually think AI will be able to assist with that part as well. But Jim Jim O'Shaughnessy, who's a prominent investor here in America, has been for many years, he he talks about the importance of becoming a curator. And I find that to be quite important, even here in in our analyst work. And what he means by that is it is your job as a human to help with relevance and of all the things that could be help to use something like AI to find all the things that are of the most important relevance to, to a situation or to whatever it is you're trying to achieve and to curate that appropriately and then to use that as a creative output. I mean, I, I've um, people talk about fear with, especially in artistry, you know, are they going to be able to write the perfect pop song now with AI and do you even need songwriters anymore? And the answer to that has always been the same. I mean, formulas for pop songs have been known for a while. Uh, you still got to do it. And even if AI can... Assist with that, or even do some of it well. It'll still matter on the human side of curation, making it slightly different. I mean, if you if you think about what AI actually is, as, as I'm characterizing it as a massive, supercharged search, what you're going to get then is a blend of what's so much of what's already out there, which can be very useful. But then that means there's quite a lot of uh, new capacity there for novelty if you apply your creativeness to it. And so, I, I think. Quite a lot of that is on tap. I think that um, for the most part, this is something that as opposed to the fear you know people have about jobs and what people will, will learn from it, I think that it's, it's much more like a human assistant uh, than it is uh, something to be feared with. But in terms of the skill sets, I would say don't don't go straight to coding. I hear that a lot. Say, oh, you've got to become a coder. You've got to learn coding. No, no I, I don't think so. Uh, with natural language processing, in real time, what's happening is that you don't need to learn Python or some other code. The system's going to know how to interface with you. And so we've been talking about commoditization a lot through this this session. And, and I want to say this here again. So much of the knowledge base of trying to, to perform a, a search engine, chat, GPT, whatever, also will be commoditized. That you know. If you go learn one skill set, I mean, I say this to our analysts a lot, if you become the all-time expert in Excel, you better hope that Excel is relevant for the rest of your career or something like it, because these things become commoditized. And so I would say that the the practice of critical thinking and creative intelligence is where a lot of value is going to be for the information economy and people's place within it, finding what's appropriate versus what the the computer might uh, give you. And on that basis, uh, critical thinking, which is applicable in every walk of life, is going to be just as applicable here, because the distinction between what an error is in AI versus your own judgment is still going to be very relevant.
0: And that point about novelty is um, is, is really interesting, too, because um, if, it, if it's true that it is just a sort of a recreation of existing concepts, to say in the case of a music or, or photograph, um, the ability to have creative thought and develop something novel becomes of greater value. There might be more of the less novel, but there'll be um, space for more of the novel too.
1: Yeah. And so think about the nature of research. Um, One of the things that we contemplate around here is that virtually all research is about the past by definition. You're looking at for patterns in the past. You're trying to understand what happened in the past and in some way, shape or form, you think that's going to point you to the future. Well, one of the things that artificial intelligence, but neural networking in general, and other concepts that are related to it, um, something called agent-based modeling, for example, which is a form of research that is actually forward-looking. And I, I, I say that because I think that research goes into the future in some sense. One thing that AI might do is that instead of research looking backward, you have the type of computing power and the AI that can let you look into the future in the sense that what are all the possible outcomes you know, we call those things Monte Carlo analyses or bootstrap analyses here, and we do those for people's financial plans. What if you applied that with enough computing power to so many situations, the macro economy, one company, one industry, and you played out a million different iterations of the future and found out, at least according to what we know, what would be the most likely and least likely. And that would help in judgment, right? That would help in, in, in you making a decision if, an AI could give you different paths of reality. What are the most likely paths of reality? I think that's one place research goes with AI. And I actually see research in our industry becoming much more about simulation than it is about recreating the past using AI.
0: And as- and in the investment sphere, you know, ascribing probabilities to the particular outcomes. Yes. So, um, which can help in portfolio construction, of course. Okay. Okay. Um, Last, I mean, it's been an amazing session, but the last question for me on this is um, you mentioned 30 months and the market's ability to look, mm-hmm. you know, essentially that far forward and it doesn't doesn't go beyond that. Um, but you seem to have a lens that looks much further. If you were, if, if you were having your little bit of crystal ball gazing, you're looking a decade from now, where do you think we will, we still be talking about AI in the same way or will it have moved, you know, in, 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 to a whole nother
1: sphere? I think in 10 years, the human condition will be pretty much as it always is, which is that we don't feel that great, even as things actually, for the most part, continue to get quite a bit better. And I I don't know that we'll be, we may or may not be having the debate on AI, whether it'll become our overlords or not, but it'll be this big integrated part of our lives that's just in the background that something that happened. And, you know, there's so many bad things in the world, there are all sorts of ills, but it is also the case that many things in the world continue getting progressively better uh, with each passing day. And yet our feelings about that is always that we feel bad about the world. And I, I see no change in that. I see several bull markets and several bear markets. I see um, huge, I, I see um, as things go, also a cycle is an oscillation in two dimensions. And so things will get too far up and they will go too far down as well. And the job of any investor, if you're doing this for the long term for your clients is To not get too excited and to not get too dour, that's the psychologist in me talking. And if you can manage to do that, you end up doing quite well, just aside from all the analysis. And my sense is that'll be the same thing with AI. We'll we'll have something else will have taken the place of the debate, something that we're existentially worried about, and yet the the world will have gone on.
0: Fantastic. But for now, you have a sunny North American evening to enjoy. So... um... Thank you very much, Michael. It's been a great conversation, a fantastic topic, and um, we've canvassed the questions really well. So thank you for your time.
1: Thanks so much for the opportunity. It was an honour to do this.
0: This has been The Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. New Zealand Funds Management Limited is the issuer of the NZ Funds KiwiSaver Scheme, the NZ Funds Managed Superannuation Service, the NZ Funds Advised Portfolio Service, the NZ Funds Wealth Builder, and NZ Funds Income Generator. A product disclosure statement for each is available at nzfunds.co.nz. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future returns.